I had a friend ask me this week when he came into the office to see me, he said, how would you define what it means to be saved? In one sentence. I don't know if I've ever been asked that question, but the remarkable thing was within seconds I said this, having your identity fixed in Jesus Christ. And I think that's it, having your identity fixed in Jesus Christ. The story of Palm Sunday is people praised him who did not have their identity fixed in him because they didn't know his identity. They didn't know their own. This week I got a great word from my mother. She lives at a retirement community in Gainesville, Georgia, and there's a guy there by the name of G.W. Collins, who I love. He's 94, just turned 94, just diagnosed with cancer all through his body. But I love this guy, golfer, funny, always spent time with him. My dad spent a lot of time with G.W. telling him about Jesus. And whenever he said, G.W., Are you ready to really receive Christ? Are you ready to find your identity in Him? He'd say 95%. But when he got the diagnosis this week, a good friend of ours, like a third son to my parents, he and another guy went up and talked to GW, and GW trusted Christ for the first time. He's not 95% anymore. He's 100%. And then we heard this morning, I don't know if you've heard the news, but that young man who was the assailant at Franklin Regional High School, he too received Christ on Thursday night. It's all about the cross. I said last week that every problem, every issue, every need that you have The Holy Spirit can meet, but he only does it one place, at the cross. And that begs the question, can you prove it? I mean, is that really true? Well, today we begin again in this series. Last week was the greatness of the cross. This week is the glory of the cross. So let's look together at two passages. First from Galatians 6. We read this last week. Verse 14, Paul's writing by his own hand, and he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, that is the church, And then over in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more now we are reconciled. Now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 300 years ago, a Christian philosopher, mathematician, physicist named Blaise Pascal said this, There is in the heart of every man a God-shaped vacuum. There is in the heart of every man and woman, every person, a God-shaped vacuum, a vacuum that only God can fill. And since Blaise Pascal made that statement, there have been hundreds of people who have said they coined that statement. And that happens with Pascal's statements. But maybe the one that is most stolen from him is this one. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. And ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. And you know where you see that most pointedly? You see it at the cross. Last week we began our series on the cross and we noted Paul's words in Galatians 6. Far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about that last week. It's amazing that Paul would say that. He's a Roman citizen. He studied under Gamaliel. He was one of the brightest, most articulate people of his day. He was a Hebrew Pharisee, he was a teacher of the law, he was a hater of Christ, and yet he's able to say, I glory in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop there. He says, by the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And we talked about that last week. What in the world does he mean? I glory in only one thing. I boast in only one thing, the cross. And by the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What's he mean? And trying to discover an answer, we went to the author that C.S. Lewis consulted more than any other. We went to the one that John Piper and Tim Keller always cite. We went to Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book entitled, The Nature of True Virtue, and in it he says this, if you've never embraced the gospel of grace delivered at the cross, if you hold that your identity and your worth comes from what you do and what others think of you, then you have never done anything in your life for anyone but yourself. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, by the cross, the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Why? Because of the work of Christ there. On the cross, Jesus has secured my worth and my identity. Therefore, I don't need to continue to go on slavishly seeking a self-identity and a worth through what I do or what other people think of me. My worth and my identity has been fixed in what Christ has done for me on the cross. That's why he says that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now think of the implications of that. I mentioned last week that if you want the Lord to meet your need, he's going to do it at the cross. 
If you've got a problem in your life or the lives of those you love, the answer is found only one place at the cross. The only place God ever does His work is at the cross. Everything you need, every problem you face, every test, every trial, every systemic fear and worry that may arise in your life is answered at the cross. And there may be some that say, that's fun, that's easy to say, it's fun to believe, but how in the world do you know that? Well, by God's grace, he gave me two illustrations of it this week that I'd like to share with you. The first is, a good friend of mine came to see me, and he sat down, and he began to talk about his own life. He's struggling with a major business decision. He's been praying about this decision for months. And he says, I remember years ago when I would pray. I'd ask God for direction and he'd always give it to me. But for the past four or five months, I've been praying and I'm getting nothing. I can't sleep. I don't want to get out of bed in the morning to face my day. I've been hiding from everybody, including you. I don't know if you've noticed. I said, yeah, I've noticed. And then through tears, he said, I've been wondering whether he really does love me anymore. I'm wondering if I'm as worthless to him as I am to me. Now, let me ask you, what's the issue in his life? Is it his business? Is it his future? Is it the worry that he has about what he's going to do? That's not the issue. The issue that he's dealing with is the biggest issue every one of us deals with, not just once, but all through our lives. And that's what's causing his sleepless nights. That's what's causing him to be depressed and not want to get out of bed. The issue is his identity. Listen to what he says. Does he really love me? Does he really love me anymore? If he loves me, why doesn't he answer me? There's only one place where he can get the answer to that question. And it's at the cross. He needs to go to the cross again. And the truth is, God has orchestrated every event in his life to bring him there to the cross. That was Monday. On Tuesday, I read a letter from a minister who writes a man whose wife just has left him, and yet this man and his wife have been in counseling with the minister and his wife for several years. He's out of town, the minister is, when he gets this word. And so listen to what he says to the man. Since I won't see you until next week, I want to take this opportunity to let you know how this whole thing has deepened our love for you. First and foremost, remember how much Jesus loves you. And far better than us, understands the pain of what you're going through. I don't think anyone in all of creation could understand the pain of what you're going through more than Jesus. Because Jesus was forsaken. He went through the agony of Gethsemane. 
And he went to the cross with no friend. It'll be easy for you at this time to feel utterly forsaken because your relationship with your wife has caused you to feel utterly forsaken. That's what's happened. You've been forsaken in an awful manner, and it only gradually will she begin to see what she's done to you. And what makes it harder is that any, it seems like any idiot could be able to grasp the gravity of what he's done. But don't forget the awful blinding power of sin when it goes down deep into a life, and it goes down deep into every life. Such sin cannot endure suffering. That's why she admitted that she can't stand to suffer. And yet, that's exactly what she's inflicting on you. So now you suffer for her, and we suffer for her. We die at the sight of her blindness, and yet, in all of it, we are profoundly rebuked by that same blindness in ourselves to the surpassing love of God in Christ. This whole thing makes me hate sin. My sin, her sin, everyone's sin. Because I see what it did to our Lord on the cross. I urge you not to take your identity from your suffering. Don't see yourself as a victim. This is what's happened to you, but that's not your identity. Your identity is defined by the cross. You see, first of all and forever... You were defined by your union to your most faithful friend who saw you perishing in your sin and blindness and yet gave his life for you. You see, all of us are betrayers of his love and grace. And yet he found it in his great heart to die for the treasonous and faithful ones like me and you. Remember your identity. Soak in it at the cross. See yourself as a new person. Hurt, wounded, yes, but not controlled by it. Rather, controlled by your Savior in whom you live and move and have your being. I don't have any great counseling formulas, Gary. Only Jesus. Gary, all I have is Jesus. Only Jesus. Remember that Jesus sees yourself and your wife and your family and all the rest of us from his standpoint. See your wife through Jesus' eyes and pray for her. She desperately needs it. And so do you. Now, where does he get that? Where does he get off focusing on Jesus rather than on his wife or on himself? He gets it from the glory of the cross. You know, the Bible uses the word glory and it defines glory as weightiness. To glorify someone is to give them the weight that they deserve. So to glorify somebody is to ascribe importance to them. And in the Scripture, there is only one who is worthy of our glory, and that's the one to whom all glory belongs, God himself. So why does Paul say that I glory in only one thing, the cross of Christ? I mean, isn't that blasphemous? If God is the only one that deserves his glory, how is it that Paul says, I glory in the cross? The reason he says it is because he knows 
that that's where God is. God is at the cross, and he glories in it, and he tells us how he does. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the identity of the cross. Luke chapter 19, verse 38. Luke tells us as Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on the back of the colt of a donkey, the whole multitude of his disciples cry out in a loud voice, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they don't have a clue of who he is. They're saying, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All glory to him, and yet they don't know who he is. They think he's the one that's come to rescue them from the Romans. He's the one who's come to do for them what they want him to do. He's the one who will do what they believe they most need. And yet, look what he's just done. In chapter 19 of Luke, he begins by giving Zacchaeus a new identity. He then tells them the parable of the talents. Then he rides on the back of a donkey colt on the same day that the prophet Daniel and Zechariah said he would ride. They cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But he's not just coming in the name of the Lord, he is the Lord. He isn't just coming in the name of the Lord, he is the Lord. I love what Spurgeon says. Before we can have an accurate idea of the love of Jesus, we have to understand in some fashion His previous glory. Who can tell the heights of His glory? You see, the reason Paul can say, far be it from me that I should boast in anything or glory in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ is because he knows in part the glory of Jesus He knows that this one who rides into Jerusalem is the glorious king of the universe. And so does that minister in Philadelphia who wrote that letter. And that's why he says, don't take your identity from your wife's departure. Don't take your identity from your suffering. Don't take your identity as as a victim. You are a dearly loved child of the King of glory who went to the cross to give all of His glory up for you. You see, that's His identity. This one on the cross is the eternal King of glory. And then second, notice the individuality of the cross. Look at verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. Paul says, For while we were still sinners, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You know in that 1963 sermon series by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that I cited last week? The doctor, they used to call him. Lloyd-Jones said this, The cross is the acid test. And Paul knew it. Do you know what an acid test is? you know the root of that phrase? It doesn't start in the 1960s with the psychedelic drugs of the hippies. They called it an acid test. But actually it began 250 years before any hippie appeared. 
In the early 1700s, gold miners who would mine various metals would pour on their mined metals nitric acid. And nitric acid would dissolve every other metal but gold. And so what Lloyd-Jones is saying is the cross is the acid test. What does it test? It tests your heart and mine. The cross of Jesus Christ is the acid test for every human being. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones went on to say, If my preaching of the cross does not offend the human heart, then I'm misrepresenting the cross. If it doesn't offend people, then I'm not preaching the cross. Why? Because the cross strikes at the pride of every man. Look what Paul says. While you were still weak, Christ died for you, the ungodly. You know what the word weak literally means? It literally means without strength, completely impotent. So what's the cross say? It says that you can do nothing to help yourself. It says you have no rights, you have no defense, you have no arguments, you have no mask, you are completely exposed by the cross for what you are. You are helpless, you are hopeless, you are lost. That's what the cross says. So it took G.W. Collins to get cancer all through his body before he recognized how weak he was. Maybe it took that 17-year-old in Murraysville to be locked up to demonstrate to him how weak he was. What's it going to take in your life? My friend, it, may t- it took the business and four to six months of silence where he begins to ask the basic question, what am I really worth? Who am I really Someone has said it's a terrible thing to be told that you're no good. I mean, it is terrible to be told you're not good enough. In a world full of do-gooders, the cross says, without me, you're nothing. Without me, you're ruined. Without me, you have no hope. Without me, you are lost. And Paul says, it's not a bad thing to be told that. It's the greatest thing in the world. Because it gets you to the place where you recognize that all of the things that you want to glory in are insufficient unless they are the cross. You know what Paul gets to see at the cross? There is no gold in him. The only gold is in Jesus. And then third and finally, notice the incomparability of the cross. Look at verse 9 of Romans 5. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Let me ask you something. What other God, what other God at any time in the history of the world has come into the world to suffer at the hands of ungodly men? What other God has there who's come And instead of wiping us out, he wipes himself out. What other God is there who comes 
and instead of cutting us off, cuts off himself. What other God is there? What other God has come to earth to save you from the world, yourselves, and the devil, and also from his own holiness and justice by defiling himself? Why does he do it? Why does Jesus do that? Why does he do for you what he said he'd never do for an angel? I mean, think of that. Those angels that fell in pride with Lucifer, Jesus never gives them a chance. But he not only gives you a chance, he secures you by his own choice. Why does he do it? He does it for one reason, so that he might recreate you with an identity that is fixed in him. Think of it. No wonder Paul says, what can we do to separate ourselves from the love of God in Christ? Can persecution, can nakedness, or peril, or sword, or divorce, or a business gone bad? No, I tell you, in all of creation, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ because of the cross. No wonder Paul says there's only one thing that I can glory in. It is the most momentous, most vital, most important event in human history, and it's not Palm Sunday, and it's not Easter. It is the cross. It is the cross where the eternal God lays down His glory so that you and I might not simply give Him glory, but that you and I might share in His glory. In one sentence, define what it means to be saved. To have your identity fixed in Jesus Christ. And there's only one place that we get it fixed and refixed day after day after day. And that is the cross. Because not only is it great, it's glorious. Think about that. Amen.